I'm uh, Jerry Lundegaard. You're Jerry Lundegaard? Yeah. Shep Proudfoot said... Shep said you'd be here at 7.30. What gives, man? Shep said 8.30. We've been sitting here an hour. He's peed three times already. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 92, and our movie this week was the 1996 Coen Brothers film Fargo. Joining me to talk about it because he'd never seen it before, Audie Norman. Audie, how you doing? Doing good, man. How are you doing? Not too bad. So you had never seen Fargo before. Never seen it. It just it was one of those that just kind of got by me um, and never, never tried to watch it. I've had heard plenty about it, like, um, <laughs> especially as someone who listens to the morning stream all the time, right. heard plenty of the quotes and phrases from it, but never mm. actually watched it before now. Now, are you much of a Coen Brothers fan in general? Have you seen other films of theirs? I've seen other films of theirs. I would say I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a fan. I'm someone who's okay with them. Okay. I don't dislike them, but sometimes there's a quirk to them. I'm like, eh. Yeah. Okay. It just doesn't, doesn't quite catch you. Okay. That makes sense. And that, mm-hmm. that could then lend into how you could have gone 25 years without seeing this um, right. movie too, because it's mm-hmm. definitely a Coen brothers movie. This was kind of, kind of the movie that really, really put them on the map. I mean, they had, they had become popular amongst kind of film uh, film circles prior to this mm-hmm. movie with things like Raising Arizona, um, Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing. But this was, for them, this was the movie that just really cemented them on the map. They, uh, they got all sorts of Academy Award nominations for it. It was up for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually up for Best Editing, which was great because... <laughs> The editor that's listed in the credits, it's it was Joel and Ethan Cohen, but they put in a pseudonym. And so they had this elaborate oh, thing. I they were going to get Albert Finney to dress up in costume to accept the award had they won, which didn't end up happening. Oh, my gosh. That would have been amazing. So, um, but yeah, this was, this was the one that really like rocketed them to sort of uh, allow them to do even more projects. Like after this, they did The Big Lebowski. This mm-hmm. is, I'm realizing, like, the fourth uh, or fifth Coen Brothers movie we've now covered on my show. Because I know <laughs> I've talked about Raising Arizona. I've talked right. about True Grit. I have mm-hmm. talked about Big Lebowski. And Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? This is the fifth one. So I think they now hmm. take the top spot for uh, most talked about director and or writer uh, team. So, nice. Um. So I want to get a more in-depth of what you thought of the movie, but just overall, like or dislike, first time seeing it. I liked it. It okay. was good. Um, the cast is out of this world. Like, you look yeah. at this cast, and a lot of people in this, it was it was somewhat early in their careers um, mm-hmm. for a few people. But, like, okay, so we'll start with William H. Macy. He's Jerry Lundergaard. He's sort of the main character of the movie. He's actually got the most, I think, the most screen time of anybody in it. Um, this was early for me in knowing who William H. Macy was. I didn't see this in theaters. I didn't see this until a few years later. I think I'd actually seen, um, Big Lebowski before I saw Fargo, Mm -hmm. but I'd seen William H. Macy in a few things. And, and this is almost like the, for a long time, this was what people thought of when they thought of William H. Macy was Jerry Lundergaard or, um, also, did you ever see Mystery Men? Yes. Yeah. So he, he mm-hmm. his character of the shoveler, while not exactly like Jerry Lundergaard, um, has that same sort of outward persona, that kind of perky and and friendly uh, demeanor. And right. Macy was really known for that. Now, here's the thing, and what I think makes Macy's performance in this movie uh, the kind of the next level that it is, is that Jerry Lundergaard is like the bad guy in this. Right. Big time. And you don't mm-hmm. think about it at first, but as you're watching the movie and you get deeper and deeper into it, you realize this is 
all his fault. This is all his Mm -hmm. doing because he, and we never really know exactly why he needs the money. Yeah, that, that was the thing that was weird for me. I was like, Oh, okay. Like we got to the end of the movie. I was like, so we never figure out why, Hmm. you know, and the Coens were kind of good at that. Uh, they, they had this way of having motivations in movies that they never touch on. And for some reason, it just doesn't matter. I talked about this with the big Lebowski in that, you know, the character of the dude, you never find out how it is. He even can afford to have an apartment in LA. Right. In the end, it doesn't really matter to the story that they're telling and sort of with this movie, you kind of, you want to know why does Jerry need this money and how much money does he Mm -hmm. need? But not knowing it somehow works. Right. Because that's the other part. You don't really know. At first you're thinking, okay, so he needs like 40 grand, right? Because he's talking to Carl and he's talking and he's saying, you know, I'll give you 40, half of the 80,000. So you start off Mm -hmm. thinking he needs like 40 grand. By the end of the movie, you're realizing he's trying to fleece his father-in-law for almost a million dollars. Right. Like, what is this dude wrapped up in? Is it just, you know, and there's little breadcrumbs, right? The GMAC financing thing. What's he doing there? Is he embezzling? Does he owe Mm -hmm. people money from gambling? Does he owe organized crime? Like, we don't know. And I kind of like that mystery to it. But Yeah, that was weird. (laughs) But, man. What is GMAC financing? For some reason, I thought that was something about the deal he was trying to get with his father-in-law. So GMAC financing is they basically they get money uh, for the cars that they have on the lot. So they borrow okay. money to buy cars and then they turn around and they sell the car and the dealership pays back what they borrowed in order to. So it's a, it's a way for the dealership to get capital in order to have an inventory. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so he's trying to play every angle he can to get more money. Yeah, and I really don't know why. And, you know, the worst part about yeah. it is his son, Scotty, is the one that takes the brunt of everything at the end. Like, it, it's kind of a downer ending when you think about the fact that this kid is now an orphan. Right. He's lost his his like, mother, his grandfather, and his father grandfather. in the space of a couple of days. Uh-huh. Like, like at the end, when he gets arrested, I'm like, where the heck, Scotty? What? Yeah. Did he not give a rat's butt about his son? And, so, and part of me is like, yeah, he doesn't because of the way he treats him. Like, yeah, they don't you know. have much of a relationship in the movie, mm-hmm. really, at all. Um, you know, it's it's weird because they don't portray that family's relationship much, and what they do feels weird. Like him and Gene have a good relationship on the surface, but why then is he? Why, why does he owe this kind of money and and all that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. He and Scotty seem to get along okay, right. But not really. And, of course, um, Wade doesn't care about him at all. Mm-hmm. There's even the line he gave of, uh, you know, well, uh, Gene and Scotty never have to worry. Right. Like, ooh, okay. I that's, noticed that. I was like, didn't talk about you there, dude. No, not at all. Um, to your face. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, I know I read some trivia that William H. Macy really, like, campaigned hard for this role. Um, mm-hmm. And... It, it's a perfect role for him because his look, he's got the blonde hair, the really bright blue eyes, um, mm-hmm. and this really friendly demeanor about him. And he does, he did the accent really well, but he carried himself in this outward way of just being like, he was a used car salesman. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you're realizing that he is a broken man and nothing yeah. is going his way. And every time he tries to get something to go his way, it falls out from underneath him and he's just getting worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So. And every once in a while, he, it explodes. Mm-hmm. Like you're like, okay, he's just mild mannered, and then he gets ticked off at something else. You know, he goes off while while he's icing his car off. He goes off when somebody leaves his office, and he just throws everything everywhere. I'm like, yo, there yeah. it is. He's got a little bit of that, but it's funny too because you can look at it and say, well, he doesn't. He never had the intention to hurt anybody. And maybe that's true, mm. but he also created situations where people got hurt very uh, directly created those situations. Right. For sure. You know, if he doesn't 
have to, uh, you know, he, he creates a situation. He, he gives a car to criminals to kidnap his wife mm. to embezzle money, basically. Uh, embezzle's not the right word, but steal money from his father-in-law mm-hmm. because he can't get his father-in-law to just loan him apparently three-quarters of a million dollars for right. something, a parking lot. I don't even know what that was for. Like, they leave right. it really muddled. Well, that- that was the thing. It was like, okay, he's trying to get that parking lot deal from his father-in-law, which turns out after his father and father's, uh, was it lawyer or whatever? Or like, yeah, this, this is all us putting up the money and you not doing anything. And then he's trying to, you know, kidnap his wife and get money from his father-in-law that way without him ever knowing. And then yeah. <laughs> who knows what else he might actually be doing that they never even talked about that he could have been trying to work. Yeah. And we don't know what his, his end game was because what was he going to do after he had all that mm-hmm. money? How was he going to explain right. suddenly what he had to his wife and his kid? Mm-hmm. So, and that's, that's part of it is Jerry Lundergaard as a character. doesn't think these things through. He thinks he's smart, no. but he's not, he's like 80%, 75% of the way there. Like he's got ideas of things that he thinks he can do, but he doesn't know how mm-hmm. to pull them off. Right. Conversely, if we flip it around and we talk about our next character, which would be, um, sorry, uh, <clears throat> I want to talk about Marge. Marge Gunderson, played by Frances McDormand. She is our oh my god, our hero essentially in this in in this movie. She's amazing. I loved the Gundersons. Like yes. Oh, Norm Norm with- Gunderson is my favorite character in this movie. No, like they got up and it's like. She has to get up for that call, and he's like, "You want me to fix you some eggs and all that?" Back and forth. I was like, "This is me and my wife. <laughs> this is my wife with the big, with the more bringing home the bacon kind of job, and me supporting her." Like, well, that's us. That, Norm's an artist too, so I can see you relating to him <laughs> yeah. perfectly. Like, even and, more, I was like, "Yeah," it's just I, like that scene at the end where he's talking about his thing, yeah, his stamp getting on the three cent stamp and he's just like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> his wife's all like, great. That's me and my wife. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, that's oh, such a great, Georgia. yeah, it's such a great relationship. Now, one of the cool bits of trivia that I read was, um, Joel Cohen went to, so, uh, John Carroll Lynch plays Norm and, um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm going to talk about him a little bit more, but he went to the two of them and he wanted them to come up with a backstory for their characters. So what they came up with was that both Norm and Marge were cops. And then mm-hmm. when they got married, they had to decide which one of them would leave the police force because they couldn't stay both mm-hmm. on. And right. it was decided Norm would because Marge was the better officer. She was the better detective. And so he stayed home. But I love that because their their marriage feels like a Midwest marriage. It feels like a mm-hmm. real a real relationship. Yeah. I mean, he's... You know, she she gets the call at whatever it was. Probably, I'm guessing it was like five six o'clock in the morning. Uh, would be, right would be my guess. And he's just like, oh, "Let me get up and get you eggs." I also love mm-hmm. the breakfast scene with the two of them because <laughs> it's that one long shot. And when you're watching it for the first time, she gets up and she leaves. You know, and he's telling her bye and all that. And it's it's like this just cool little shot. And she goes out to the car. And now you're sitting here. You're like, they haven't cut yet. Why haven't they right. cut? Why is the scene still going on? What's happening here? What uh-huh. are we watching? And then you slowly get her coming back in and, you know, she's got to knock her boots off to tell him Prowler needs a jump. And I'm, it's funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's so well-timed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, he's dragging the plate back across like, okay, well, I'll eat. What you yeah. oh. Yep. This is good. Now I yeah, also, so good. yeah, I also like the fact that all of their scenes together, they're either lying in bed or eating. <laughs> every single one um but uh man francis mcdormand as marge so she was apparently reluctant to take the role at first because hmm. uh something about playing she wanted to do different types of roles or something but now you know in hindsight obviously she realizes that it was a, a smart move i oh, loved yeah. so much about her character first of all she is the the protagonist she's the the hero mm-hmm. of the story and she is the uh, the the simple Southern lawyer or simple, you know, Columbo style detective that that right. seems 
like they're just kind of a, a very simple character, but they're super good at what they do. And right. So she is wicked smart in this thing. Yeah. And she has got this uh, same kind of outward personality as Lundergaard. Very perky, mm-hmm. very personable, but she's also calculating and, and manipulating people with that as she's doing her job. And it's really right. well done. Um, you know, the, the scene with her and Shep is great because she's just, she's super mm-hmm. friendly, but then she's like, look, you know, you don't want to end up back in prison, do you? But sounds like a parole right. violation to me. And that gets him in line real quick. Mm-hmm. And she has, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, she did that so well and like off the cuff, just like she didn't get any more intense with her talking about it. She was just like, oh, hey, by the way, yeah. I know you. Mm-hmm. I know where you've been. I know where you could be going if you don't cooperate. It's just that simple. Yeah, she's just she's just good, good at what she does. Mm-hmm. Um, she has one of the scenes that on its surface feels like it doesn't belong in the movie, and that is the scene with her and Mike at the restaurant in Minneapolis. Yeah. That so one, that here, one, I will say weirded me out a little bit. Right. So, so here's the interesting thing about that. When you, when you think about it, if you watch this again, pay a little bit more attention. So she goes into that, she sits down with him, right? You mm-hmm. get already the feeling of how well she, um, deals with people when he wants to sit next to her and she's just like, ah, no, you can go back over there. Right. But that scene sets up the phone call when she's leaving Minneapolis with her friend. And she finds mm-hmm. out that everything Mike was telling her was a lie. Mm-hmm. Then right. I I think that's what kicks it for her to go back and talk to Jerry one more time. Uh, and dig just that okay, little that bit sense. more. Sure. So the scene on its surface, on its face, feels out of place. And it does. If you're watching it, it's like, why are we having this scene? It's uncomfortable. Okay. Like, it's an uncomfortable right. scene. And it just doesn't serve the plot at all. But when you think about it again... It's sort of that sets up. So it's character building without, and it's also character building of her outside of being a police officer and her marriage. Right. Like a real person would have. Mm-hmm. So they do yeah, so there's much. Something to it. Yeah. There's definitely something to that relationship because she definitely tries to look good mm-hmm. for him. But at the same time, you know, she's definitely faithful to her husband and everything. Like there's no question there. Yeah. So it's, you know, just that funny little quirk of, hey, I'm a real person and want to look nice for somebody because I don't get to do that that often because I'm a cop. Yeah. And then, you know, she gets there and he gets a little, <laughs> let's say, grabby yeah. without actually grabbing. And then she's like, take a step back, fella. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting because she's a strong character without having to be like, they didn't have to make her a masculine character. Um, right. she's pregnant and it's brought up a bunch of times, but it's not mm-hmm. used as a crutch. There's no, Oh no, my water broke yeah. or, or any of that. In fact, they even have, I love the first scene with her at the, at the, um, crime scene when she goes over mm-hmm. to the car and she gets down, she looks mm-hmm. in there. And then when she stands up and she does that, like, Oh, I'm going to throw up. Right. And her partner's you all right. No, it's just morning sickness. Okay. It's passed. I'm hungry now. Like, <laughs> I love that. Um, I love that too. And especially as somebody who, whose wife has been pregnant, like that kind of stuff is that random. And like, that just made it feel more real for me, for somebody who hasn't been around someone who's pregnant and dealing with that kind of thing. Yeah. That feels a little funny, a little weird. I was just like, okay, they're, you know, just throwing in random stuff for her pregnancy, which felt more real to me. Well, it's great, too, because it's kind of this play on the tropey scene of police coming up to a crime scene where it's usually that the female officer is typically written as the newer officer and then uh-huh. sees the crime scene, somebody getting shot and throws up because they can't handle that. And right. here she's the veteran officer and she sees what's going on and then she's about to throw up. But, oh, nope, it's not actually because of that. Uh, so it's funny. Right. It. it tells you a lot about Marge right away. Right. And then she goes right into like piecing everything together um, mm-hmm. of what the crime that happened. So right, it's great because we get to see her being a pretty decent cop throughout the movie. Um, and again, without mm-hmm. her having to, you know, she's, she is more of a realistic police officer too. 
She's doing yeah. detective work. She only pulls her gun right. and fires what twice. I think she fires mm-hmm. two shots and that's it. Yeah. And when she incapacitates him, she doesn't shoot him again. She right. she hit him in the leg, knocked him down, and then went and arrested him. So mm-hmm. and, you know, and also she has the moral centering moment at the end in the car with uh, with Peter Stormare's character. Yeah. So that was that was kind of cool. Uh, all right, so. Now that I've mentioned him, we got to talk about Carl and uh, Gern. Gern, I think mm-hmm. was his name. Um, so we got Steve Buscemi, uh, Gare, sorry, Gare Grimsward. I, I can't. Uh, but Steve Buscemi sure. and Peter Stormare playing uh, our mm-hmm. two kind of henchmen, I guess, is right. really what they are. Um, these two are just brilliant. This was kind of, again, this was another one of those breakout roles for uh, Stormare. This was kind of his first big American role. Oh, okay. Um, he would go on to be in like uh, Armageddon a couple years later and yeah. kind of do the character actor thing before really getting more and more uh, as it mm-hmm. went. But I want to talk about him first because he was, he has like 18 lines of dialogue in the whole movie. Yeah. He's not think, a talker. I think I read somewhere where he never says more than one complete sentence at a time. Huh. Which I thought was kind of neat. But he does so much acting. You you get so much of what's mm-hmm. going on in that crazy dude's head from just yeah. the looks and the stares that he gives you. Like, he's a straight-up crazy mm-hmm. person. He knows how to use his eyes to act yes, really he does. well. Yes, he absolutely does. And it's great. It's a, it's a very... It's a pretty one-note character, but it's so well executed that mm-hmm, it doesn't need sure. the depth. Yeah. You know, the depth needs to come from your main characters, right? So your your Lunderguards and your Marge um, Gundersons, they need to have the depth and, and multifaceted. But somebody like Gare doesn't need that. He needs to be a henchman. Mm-hmm. So he's perfect for that. Yeah. And you get some, I would say you get depth by his actions, and that's enough. True. And he's just no nonsense, too. Like, as soon as he realizes mm-hmm. something's going on with the state trooper, he grabs the guy, pulls the gun, takes the trooper out. As soon, exactly. Yeah, and then later on, as soon as he realizes that that's things with Carl aren't going right, he just grabs the axe and a hat and goes out and takes care yeah. of him. Like, there's no mm-hmm. middle ground. Right. And Carl, on the other hand, is talkative. He's got all the dialogue, um, and he's, oh, yeah. he's Steve Buscemi at his most Steve Buscemi, and I love it. He's so <laughs> yeah. good in this. Um, when they're in the car going through the city, and he's just <laughs> like... So you're not going to talk to me at all, okay? Well, I'm just going to sit over here silent. Yep. Silent as all get out. Now, I'm not going to say a word. <laughs> not a single word. You're just not going to hear anything from me because I'm <laughs> going to be silent right back at you. Silent, silent, silent. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Oh, it's so good. Um, I don't know if anybody besides Steve Buscemi could make that as funny as he did. I, I really don't think anyone could. You know, and he can even make a scene, the, the scene we talked about earlier with um, the father uh, at the car park. It's a gruesome scene, but it's also funny because he's just, mm-hmm. he's at the end of it. He doesn't care anymore. He's just done mm-hmm. with this crap. Um, so his, the look on his face when he gets out of the car and he turns in, it's not Jerry standing there. And he's just like, come on, what is going on here? Right. Um, but we also see that he's not afraid to pull out a gun too. Like up to that point, I was like, is he, what's he going? Is he just the brains and... Peter Stormare's just a muscle, and then he pulls out the gun and shoots father-in-law. I was like, oh, no, he's okay shooting people. Yeah, I think I think with him, what we're, we're led to believe is, like, it's not his first move. Because obviously with the state mm-hmm. trooper, he tries to talk his way out of it. Right. Um, but I think... Talk slash pay his way out of it. Yeah. I think what we get is we get, uh, when when he gets desperate, he's going to do what he needs to to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and unfortunately... He doesn't. He has uh, the most uh, iconic death in this movie of the seven. Uh, the, the body count is seven, and uh, the most memorable one is definitely Carl. Uh-huh. Because uh, the last thing we see of him is getting hit with an axe, and the next time we see him, it's just a foot sticking yeah. out of a wood chipper. <laughs> Which, okay. So the beginning of the movie, they have uh, a slug up that talks about how this was based on real events. Right. Um, the Cohen brothers have come out later and said, okay, no, it really wasn't. Um, right. They just kind of did that as like a, as a ploy. However, 
the mm-hmm. uh, the wood chipper thing is actually based on some truth. There was uh, a little bit of truth behind that story, but uh, it didn't happen in Minnesota. Um, it happened somewhere in the Northeast or something. Right. But I thought that was funny that that was a real a real thing that actually did happen, but the rest of the movie, no. Because there was yeah. a rumor for a little while that you could find, like people were trying to go out to find the briefcase of money, which <laughs> to me is funny because that he only buried it like six inches deep in the snow. Mm-hmm. So by spring, people would have found that anyway. Right. Um, but yeah, Bashemi's just, oh, he's so good at that type of character. And I like the mm-hmm. subtle jokes of like, he's funny looking. Everybody calls him right. funny looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, which but, on this side of it makes sense to us, but it's like, come on now, you can describe him. Well, and the best part I think is it's, he's funny looking, but in a general sort of way, like nobody can describe right. what he looks like. He's just funny looking mm-hmm. and it's, it's just great, but yeah, he's just, he's always fun to see in something. And yeah. this is like the perfect type of role for him. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was definitely up there. Now, John Carroll Lynch, I mentioned, um, was Norm. And right. I, he's my favorite character in this just because he's just, he's just a dude. Um, he, yeah. I noticed too, every time Marge starts talking about anything police related, um, he gets interested, but he's never like, so I think that's where that sort of that former cop in him comes out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. now this was early in his career. I didn't realize. So he was probably about 32 ish, 33 when they made this. And mm-hmm. he had only done a few a oh, few wow, projects yeah. before that. Um, this really kind of kickstarted his career. And he went on to, mm-hmm. I remember him in Volcano. Um, he actually has a really memorable moment in Volcano, if you've ever seen that movie. Uh, but he, It's he, been so long. He shows up in, in Face Off. Um, yep. The thing for me, though, that I will always remember him from, because he was in the remake of uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. He was in the, the oh, yeah. redone version of The Fugitive, this, that. He was in Zodiac, um, which I've covered on this show. That was 2007. He played Arthur Lee Allen in that. Mm. The, the most likely culprit as the Zodiac, according to that movie. And he's right. so good in it in the short period of time he's in there. That, mm-hmm. you know, it's just It's just great to see. That was about 10 years later. When he got yeah, to do that. I'm going to agree with Wicked Kitten in the chat. Definitely remember him from the Drew Carey show. Yep. Yep. That he's is great it. in that. That is another one. He does look like he's about 40 in this in Fargo, and it's the male uh-huh. pattern baldness. Apparently, he went bald early. Oh, Mercury Rising. Yeah. I forgot about that one, too. He was one of those kind of character actors that would show up in a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. And even to this day, he's in a new series with Ryan Philippi called um, Big Sky that just debuted. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize he was in that. Huh. I, this is going to make me want to watch American Horror Story more because he's in that and he plays John Wayne Gacy in this season. <laughs> oh, wow. He, uh, I am frightened to think of him as a, as a clown. Yeah. <laughs> So he was he was a lot of fun though. Um, he had a lot of fun oh, with yeah. this role in the in the short amount of time that he was on there. Uh, I liked having him be an artist. I thought that was a cool mm-hmm. cool thing. Again, that's where I felt like this is me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like the whole him being a cop thing makes a lot even much more sense. How he's in Marge's office with lunch at one point. Yeah. Just like and not only is he her husband, but former cop, he's going to be let in. They're going to be like, oh, come on in. And just yeah. sitting there waiting on her. Yep. And I like that that he's just, you know, he knows she's making the money. He's going to take care of her. So he brings her lunch because right. she's going to yeah. need it. He makes sure she Again. gets food. Yeah. <laughs> I was um, like, that's us. So much. Uh, let's see. And then, okay. Harv Presnell uh, played Wade Gustafson. He... Mm-hmm. Again, not a ton of screen time, but it's pretty memorable. I remember right. him from... Did you ever watch The Pretender? Yes. Yep. He was the he was in the Pretender. That's that's <laughs> one of the ways I know him. Oh my gosh, that show! Holy crap! Yeah, and he's he was great in that show, and he's he's really good in this. Uh-huh. He probably has the weakest of the Minnesota accents, I would say, but he's trying. Yeah, he's still he is still trying a little bit. Um, but he 
what I liked about him was he was like this just gruff character, and he was another one of the people that made Lundergaard's life hell. Mm-hmm. Because he just he it is almost that kind of classic. Um, you're not good enough for my daughter, right? Is how he treated Jerry. Uh, and which, from what we've seen, he was right. Yeah, but. <laughs> and this is one of the times where <laughs> he was right. Um, yep. Right down to the point where he just basically takes over and is like, "I'm mm-hmm. going to go do the money drop. I don't care what you say anymore." Um, yep. Which unfortunately leads to him getting shot and then put in the trunk of the car and never seen again. And that is another thing Mm -hmm. that happens a lot in Coen Brothers movies I've noticed is stuff will happen to people off screen or they will just be unceremoniously like disposed of Mm -hmm. and you never see them again. Um, Gene Lundergaard, Jerry's wife, uh, played by Kristen Rudrud, I don't know how to pronounce that. It's got umlaut. Yeah, good luck with that Um, you know, Gene dies off screen. We don't see it happen. They just, Carl comes back and she's laying on the floor. Mm-hmm. And that was. And at first I was like, she's just laying on the floor. She knocked out. I was like, oh, no, I see the blood dripping down the background there. She's, uh, she's not getting up. Yeah. Which again is going to be uh, a good shorthand for how crazy Gare is. Mm-hmm. And also it, it's set, it, it's a bummer to do that to a character because, but the Coens are so good at that, where it makes, it takes away this um, uh, sort of the, it makes the death feel meaningless, mm-hmm. which makes it almost hurt more in a way. Right. Yeah. And they were really they're they're just they're good at that happening in their movies. Mm-hmm. Because you think if you think about it in a standard kind of Hollywood style movie. Um, you would think that something like that, you would either see the scene for it or it would have happened during the kidnapping, right? There would have been right. a lot of attention paid to it. And there's zero attention paid to it. Mm-hmm. Almost to the point where if you're not paying attention, you might think, well, maybe she's not dead and they're going to find her at the end of the movie type of thing. Right. And as we know, that doesn't happen. So, right. yeah, this movie kind of has a downer ending. <laughs> yeah. Because really, when you think about it, uh, Jerry is captured and he's going to jail. Scotty's mm-hmm. an orphan. His grandfather's right. dead. His mother is dead. Uh, one of the two kidnappers is dead and and ninety percent ground up, and the other one is going to right. jail and has no remorse for it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I mean, the only person that got out of this without anything really awful happening to them would have been, um, well, Shep. Shep Proudfoot somehow gets away, at least yeah. in the in this story. Mm-hmm. And then Stan Grossman, um, the financial advisor for right, Wade. he not, nothing happens to him, um, but that's only because he wasn't involved in the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. They just sort of wrote him off screen. Um, yeah, he probably takes care of Scotty somehow, the, one the, way yeah. or another. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's a downer of an ending, and yet somehow they managed to bring it back to this kind of moral center with uh, with Marge, where mm-hmm. she has her little speech to Gare in the car as they they sort of have that mirroring scene from the opening with the procession of uh, police cars and whatnot heading through that blizzard in the opposite direction towards the lake house, mm-hmm. as, and she's delivering that, and then she just goes home and is with her husband. Yeah. So, I mean, Marge gets out of things, obviously, okay. Um, sure. So, uh, yeah. Now, I loved, loved, loved the opening of this movie. Um, Roger Deakins did the cinematography. And mm-hmm. I don't know if this was the first movie he collaborated with them on. I'm going to check that. But um, I did think it was funny that there's only, like, one scene they shot where it was sunny. And he didn't like it because he felt like it didn't fit the rest of the movie. Huh. Um, which, you know, that's a very Roger Deakins thing. But sure. um, let's see. Where was it? Homicide. No, he had worked on Hudsucker Proxy prior to Fargo. Okay. So, but this was like the second one. But that opening is so great. You've got the the theme music that plays. And the music in this mm-hmm. is pretty good. But it's that 
all white and it very slowly you see a little bit here and there you see a bird or you see the mm-hmm. road and then that big musical swell when the car just crests and you get this right. you get this big musical swell and it's just a crappy oldsmobile coming up over a small ridge mm-hmm. so i just love the, the way this movie opens up because it really sets the tone right away for where you are and if you've right. lived in the midwest at all you've been on a road like that at some point where it's just goes on forever and in the winter you can't see anything you know the shots hmm. at night during that high speed chase kind of makes sense i call it i mean okay i should say chase in quote quotations because there's not much of a chase there but on a road like that all you can see is where your headlights hit that's it there's nothing hmm. around there's no trees yeah. or nothing so uh yeah and but i think the the overall look of the movie has this kind of washed out um toned down colors nothing is overly saturated and that and deacons mm-hmm. is so good at creating a mood with the visuals yeah and he has now collaborated with the cohen's so much that they just they have this beautiful way of making a film but sure. yeah i just love that opening and i like the way this this movie looked now <laughs> here's an interesting thing uh most of the snow in this movie is artificial I was reading about that. <laughs> because it was one of the warmest winters Minnesota's had in, in a long time. Yeah. And so <laughs> they had to sad. bounce around to a bunch of different places and to find snow and then add artificial snow and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's funny that the movie's called Fargo, and there's one scene that takes place in Fargo, and that's the very beginning <laughs> of the movie. <laughs> but I guess that was because the Coens thought that calling it Brainerd wouldn't work. Like it, yeah. Fargo was a more interesting title. So Fargo's got a that. better ring to it. Yeah. Um, and nothing was shot in Fargo either. That bar, uh, the huh. exterior of that bar was somewhere outside of Minneapolis. So, Well, that happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, there's something about this movie that it's, and it's funny too. Like it has, it's a dark comedy, mm-hmm. but it definitely has some moments that are laugh out loud funny to me. Um, yeah. The scene the scene where Marge is interviewing the two girls about their time with Carl and Gail yeah. and Gare. <laughs> Francis McDormand. Grew up, where they came from. Yeah. And she's oh. like, Francis McDormand in that scene as Marge is perfect. That's really where you get the sense that she's not a simpleton at all, but she comes off mm-hmm. like that because right. you can see, you can see it in her eyes that she's just like, what are you talking about? Why are you telling me these things? Like none of it makes any sense to her. Right. And it's just oh, it's so well done. I, I adore. Also, like, I just adore that. Also in her eyes, I could just see just like you idiot girls. <laughs> yes. You yep. idiot girls. Absolutely. But she never said that. Cause she needed, she knows she needs the information. She can't like talk down to them and then try to get anything from them. She's just like, yeah, I get that. Okay. But yeah, in her eyes, it's like, you idiot girls. Well, it's a it's a combination of I need to get that information and Midwest, like, hospitality slash niceness. Right. She, she can't be mm-hmm. rude. But, yeah, yeah, you definitely see her on her face of, like, okay, you're dumb. You two are dumber than a bag of hammers. <laughs> oh, so good. Um, I got some interesting trivia for this movie. Ooh, so, okay. when Carl calls Jerry... Um, the last time and tells him that the deal's got to get done and mm-hmm. you know and wade picks up the phone and, and all that kind of stuff. right he tells him 30 minutes we wrap this up there was exactly 30 minutes of the film left at that point mm-hmm. so you know it's fun oh. little fun little filmmaker nice. thing that happens at an hour and eight minutes and the runtime of this was an hour and 38 minutes wow nice so i thought that was pretty cool that's you know that's a that's a cohen brothers doing a little flex um yeah the snowplow at the very end, because that's a really uh-huh. cool, like that last shot, uh, that last kind of crane shot coming into the hotel. It's a really cool shot. It starts off and you see that plow go by and then it slowly pushes in. That plow wasn't supposed uh-huh. to be there. That wasn't scripted. They had put mm-hmm. up signs uh, to say, hey, don't drive through here. We're filming. And the plow driver just blew right past it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, nobody's telling me where I'm not taking this machine. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, cool. That's um, funny. I like that. Uh, let's see, Joel. Oh, okay. Um, backstory for their characters. They had to choose which one had to quit. Yeah, that was the, I mentioned that earlier. Um, 18 lines of dialogue. I talked about that. Uh, what was the other mm-hmm. one? There was another one I had that was a good one. 
Um, uh, do, 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 do. Three weeks into shooting, Joel and Ethan Cohn revealed that the their cast and crew that this was not, in fact, based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Marge and Norm were always eating or lying in bed. So that was, you know, that that was it basically. Uh, the thirty mm-hmm. minutes thing, though, I think is pretty cool. I love when directors, yeah, when films play around with time like that and and give mm-hmm. those. So, yeah, this is a this is just a solid movie, and um, it does have some great. So, okay, I do want to talk a little bit about the Minnesota accents that they used. Yeah, because they definitely <laughs> they definitely leaned into it hard. The funny thing is. They did. From my time and my experience that I've spent in Minnesota or talking to people from there, from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, it's not as cartoonish as you would think. Um, right. There's a lot of that accent that does happen. Now, people that mm-hmm. live there today might might refute that or might, uh, might say otherwise, but I've noticed in my time anyway that you get a lot of that. So, well, especially... Yeah, the hot dish, don't you know? Especially with... Uh, towns like that that are not big cities mm-hmm. like i'm in georgia in the south i'm in macon i grew up in atlanta i don't have that much of an accent but i definitely have lived in places like i lived in savannah for a while there's some heavy accents on some Ooh, people boy are there ever so like and you know a lot of times that is done well slash not well in some movies and i definitely <laughs> can pick out the ones that are not done well and there are others that people were like that's so cartoonish I'm like it's really not there are people that talk like that I had uh, I dated a girl once who was from Virginia, and I went to visit her, and I met her grandfather. <laughs> her grandfather looked exactly like Roy Scheider, like uh-huh. he could have passed for Roy Scheider. However, his his accent, his Southern accent, was so thick, and his drawl was so thick. I have no clue what that man said to me at any point. <laughs> yeah. Like he made he made Boomhauer from uh, King of the Hill sound like uh like he had perfect diction like it was crazy oh my gosh yeah so yeah i've definitely seen that or heard that yeah um but i i would say from what i heard it definitely sounded like everybody was trying to do that accent as as authentically as possible it didn't seem like anybody was cartoonish with it i didn't really think so no now part of that helps that joel and ethan cohen are from minnesota so right they're gonna probably were like hard on making that right and getting that right. Yeah. And the other thing too, is the way that they're written is it's not just the accent, but it's also the way they phrase things and how they set it. So you would get like, mm-hmm. um, like, okay, I've got some clips cause I, I did capture a few things. So I want to play some of these and here's, here's one that for me, uh, I think this is the one anyway, is something that you just hear, especially in Midwest in Minnesota and stuff like that would be this kind of an exchange. And I'd go to Midwest Federal, talk to old Bill Deal. He's at North Star. Like that whole, I'd go talk to him. No, 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 he's he's over at, uh, you know, and you, you'd tell him where he is. Uh-huh. So, that kind of stuff. Or uh, the woman that played um, Jean is from Fargo. I think she was the only cast member that was actually born and raised in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, so okay. she was really good at the accent when she said stuff like that. Sure. Yeah, I'll catch him for you. I'll catch him for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, just in a general kind of way. I love that old man. <laughs> that whole that whole scene. Uh, oh, that where, that interview was great. Where was that well, one? Especially with the cop putting his little hood thing on, and you never see his face hardly at all in the scene. Yeah, that's I true. It was hilarious. That whole scene, I actually wrote a note to myself saying that is like the most Midwest conversation. Because mm-hmm. you've got, first of all, they both have their hoods up. It's middle right. of winter. And the the old man is just like this string of consciousness. And he's barely giving mm-hmm. the other guy a chance to talk. Right. Meanwhile, he's also got a push broom that he's pushing around the slush mm-hmm. with. <laughs> yeah. Which I've done. So I, I kind of know what that's like. Um, sure. Uh, this, this one, of course, was said a lot. Um, the heck do you mean? That uh-huh. uh, that one's pretty good. Uh, what do we have? It, it's oh, I don't funny how all that. Me. Sorry, sorry. I was just gonna say the heck do you mean? Definitely felt like when um, Buscemi threw it back in his face. Yeah. that definitely felt like 
okay, this is m- maybe more of a just Jerry thing. <laughs> and, and Carl's done with it. He's like, shut up. Yeah. What that the heck you mean? Yep. This is what's happening. Uh, this was another good one. Um, this was the, the old guy in their conversation. So I don't think a whole great deal of it, but then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. <laughs> that was that was one of those uh, laugh out loud moments for me. For sure. Yep, I called it in, so uh, yeah. There there you go. Um I had to exactly. get a, I absolutely had to get in. Oh. And also a... Jeez. So now I can play those for something. I don't know what. Um, <laughs> oh, jeez. How, uh, how about this? Are you staying for supper? That's totally a Midwest thing, Going, going, still using yeah. supper. Uh-huh. Um, we use it down here some, too. Yeah, it gets used quite a bit, but it's definitely... I mean, especially the way she says it. Are you staying for supper? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, oh. Prowler needs a jump. That was another one of those, like, that's a total Minnesota <laughs> thing. Your cop car needs to get a jump because the battery froze overnight. <laughs> you know, because it's like nine degrees out. Um, uh-huh. Oh, man, I had a couple of, oh. Yeah. I mean, that. Or. Oh, you betcha, yeah. There's no, that's that's another <laughs> great one. So, yeah, I mean, overall. I, I just, what was this worry? This could work out real good for me and Gene and Scotty. Oh. Gene and Scotty never have to worry. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was rough. <laughs> oh, this one too. You're saying, what are you saying? <laughs> just gets so confused. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the partner, the other cop too, cracked me up. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> he had a great accent uh-huh it's just uh, the the movie is both the coens do such a good job of take making something dark but also funny like mm-hmm. for me there's some of the best dark comedies that i um that i have seen because right i mean you you think about the subject matter of this movie it's dark mm-hmm. but you have these moments where it's just laugh out loud funny too because right they they create this like hyper realistic version of our world that mm-hmm. is reality, but isn't. I've talked about it a lot when I talked about uh, some of their other movies, and it's like it's real, but then it's also kind of not real, and like people right. almost don't exist in this way. But then you also know somebody who is exactly like some of these characters, right? For sure. And knowing they're from the Midwest, it makes it that much more enjoyable to be like, here we are. Yep. Mm-hmm. We got some funny things going on sometimes with the way we act. We get well, like, I was, love people that make stuff like that. And it's just like, you know, unabashedly, this is how we are. Yeah. All and, of it. and some of it too was kind of a satire on our society, right? Of this like mm-hmm. overly polite society, but there's some wicked stuff going on underneath that you don't know about. Right. And you don't see. So it's, it works on a, on a few different levels, which is why this movie did so well. Box office wise, it wasn't like it was gangbusters. It had a small budget. I think it was only about a seven million dollar budget for this movie, um, mm-hmm. and it made twenty four million in the U.S., about sixty million worldwide, which is a you know obviously it made money. It recouped its investment, but right. um, where this movie really shone was in the awards and uh, praise from critics. Critics loved it. Uh, Cisco right. and Ebert called it their their top movie of 1996, mm. and it was up for quite a few uh, Academy Awards. It yeah, where seven of them me. it looks like best picture, best director, best actress, supporting actor, screenplay, cinematography, and editing. Yeah, okay, so yeah, and it definitely deserved any one of those that it would have won. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there it is. Jeez. Right so Frances McDormand got Best Actress, deservedly. Holy cow. Yeah, she was so good. And they got Best Original Screenplay. Which, again, I think very well earned. What won Best Picture that year? I'm, now I'm curious. Mm, 1997 Academy Awards. 
Um, That's the thing. Best picture was uh, the English Patient. Oh, see, yeah, I would have taken. I would have taken this over the it English Patient. Fargo, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, and Shine. Yeah, I remember English Patient not being uh, being looked at as one of the worst Best Picture winners. Um, uh huh. And really, yeah, I can kind of see that. Like Fargo probably should have won it that year. Uh, you could yeah. have given it to Shine as well, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, we're going to pause for a second. You. Okay. <laughs> Shush. Go lay down. Actually, you know what? I'm going to pause here, and we'll pick back up to finish out the show. He's going to have to go outside because he won't leave me alone. Okay. So keep the... Keep everybody uh, company. I'll be back. Okay. Yep. Puppy time. Wicked kitten. All right. So how's everybody doing? Come on. I see Monica, Phil. Good to see you, buddy. And Phelan. Glad to have you too. Yeah. I don't know why I never watched this movie before. I've seen several, like, I'm not opposed to the... Cohen Brothers, it's just not my first first pick. But I've seen plenty of them, so it's not like... This is just a weird one. 96, that was like a couple of years before I graduated high school. So I was more into the big box office stuff than this kind of stuff. And then when I got into art school, it was all kinds of like animation and CG stuff that was coming up. So that's where I was watching stuff. Um, but yeah, this was a fun one. So have you actually finished this one yet, Monica? Like, I hope so at this point, because we're talking about it. Oh, just today. <laughs> well, at least you got there in time for for us talking about it. Um. Yeah, this one definitely feels like like we were just talking about. It feels like this is one of those cult classics that came out, did okay. Obviously did okay for the Coens. The critics loved. And then it just had to take cult status for people to really glom onto it. Um, I mean, obviously, I hadn't watched it before now. so, um, But I don't have a good reason for that either. Other than that, I just never took the time to. But... It's really good. The funniest thing is, I realized this, and I'll talk to Travis about it. So we watched this movie, and then for our Highlander show tomorrow, we watched the first Highlander movie. And it was really funny to me, because this was made in 96, but set in 87. First Highlander movie was made and released in 86. So you assume the present day of that is 86. So it's funny to me thinking about these two movies, how they technically take place within the same time frame. So like a year before Fargo happens, Connor McLeod's going over there and becoming the only one. So that was funny to me when I realized that. <laughs> I was like, I watched Fargo and I was like, this is May 96. Why does everything look so old? Oh, it's set in 87. Okay. And then I watched Highlander, which is actually in 86. And I was like, the cars look all the same. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm down with the Coen brothers. They're all right. I did see all that, uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs stuff. That was hilarious. And had definitely had the dark parts. might actually tie it tie it to Highlander. That's funny. Yeah, I haven't watched the show at all. I've watched bits and pieces of the show on YouTube. Like, it's funny how much I watch stuff on YouTube just in bits and pieces to get enough get enough of it without sitting down and watching the whole show at once, which is kind of weird, but that's where I'm at now. Um, tend to watch the places where there's whatever gun battle because. 
I like seeing that kind of stuff and seeing how they do it and handle that. Who was it? Phil, was it you that was talking about how good? Yeah, I think it was you talking to Austin on y'all's show about how good um, what's-his-name-is in this last season. So that makes me want to watch it. Of the show? For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I need to see that, too. Because Phil and Austin were talking about it on their picture show the other day about how good uh, Chris, um, what's his name? Oh, Chris Rock. Chris Rock is amazing in that. Very cool. So the only thing I remember Chris Rock acting in was the fourth Lethal Weapon movie. Oh, he was in Dogma? He was in... uh, Oh, yeah. He was in Dogma, too. He was Rufus. He was great in Dogma. Yeah. But I just remember him in Lethal Weapon 4 being... Him and Joe Pesci going together about that's how they f yeah yeah because they do this and they do that and they uh, go off together yeah that's yeah, pretty good righty. okay so we'll pick back up sure so okay so we've established that you like the movie um, did you yep. have kind of a favorite moment or a favorite scene uh, at all um. Again, that one when we're first introduced to um, Norm. No, to Margin. Uh, yeah, Margin Norm. Margin Stan or Norm. Yeah, when we're first introduced to Margin Norm, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's me and my <laughs> wife. That's amazing. Like that just kind of stood out to me. Um, and finally. Okay, so here's a funny one. One of those where like I've been listening to the morning stream forever mm-hmm. and hear them talk about it and Scott has every different little sound bite and talking about getting shot in the face. Yes. No idea. And finally seeing that was hilarious. <laughs> seeing him shot in the face but not actually hit anything other than through that. I was like, ooh. Yep. And then him taking out father in law. That was pretty intense. Yeah, that scene for me as the the perfect like that's that for me is a perfect black comedy scene, right? Because it is mm-hmm. funny. It has mm-hmm. Buscemi is genuinely funny for the first two thirds of that scene, but then it gets super dark because he just pulls a gun and shoots him, and then he gets shot yeah. in the face. And the the moment of getting shot in the face is both gruesome and funny. And then mm-hmm. it gets gruesome again because he just shoots the guy another four or five times and leaves. Right. And then he kills the guy working the parking garage when he goes to leave. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, right. it, it goes dark really quick, but it's a really well mm-hmm. done and put together scene. So that's a great, yeah. that's a great one. There's so many of them in this. I love the the simple scenes, like the two of them at the uh, at the buffet, and they go over and they sit down <laughs> because the way it's shot, it's like we're spending a lot of time watching them walk across the restaurant and sit down. Uh huh. But yet it also it just makes it feel realistic. Plus, I grew up in the I, – I live in the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest in northern Michigan. I know restaurants like that, exactly mm-hmm. like oh, that. Oh, yeah. So we got for, plenty of them down here too. The one, the one thing that makes me – that helps me a little bit more is you said the trivia they had in, that the Coens had that Norm was a cop at one point. I mm-hmm. wonder if they were together as cops. Because yeah. the thing that weirded me out was him sitting next to her in the diner instead of across. Yeah, that was different, but for sure. But if you're if you've been partners for so long and you're used to sitting next to somebody in a car like that, and you just mentally sit next to somebody like that, like that would make sense to me. Yeah, no, that's something I hadn't thought about. But you're right; so. I could see that. That's a one little quirky thing that I was like, uh, and now and then the backstory kind of thing was helps me make sense of it instead of just thinking it's weird. Mm-hmm. And you know, I also love I love all the little moments in this. I love the little moment of like we don't meet Shep until you know partway through the movie, and it's Jerry going up to mm-hmm. him, and he's you know the the guy never acknowledges him and just answers his questions mm-hmm. while still looking at the car doing work on it. Right. Um. In fact, we don't even meet Marge until a third of the way through the movie. It's 30 minutes right. of the movie before she even shows up. And I had forgotten yeah. that it was that long. So Yeah, I definitely picked up on that because I was like, I know she's in this. When When's she coming? When's she coming? Okay, we're still going. Okay, still on William H. Macy and all this. Okay, okay. Well, damn, damn. 
Okay, yeah, there we go. I mean, oh, there's the call turret. Got it. We get all the way through like the the first killings and everything before she mm-hmm. even shows up, and then you know she obviously carries the rest of the movie for the most part. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, uh, I I mean, there's so many of those good little moments. Um, it's hard to pick like one or two because I really just enjoyed this movie front to back. Um, yeah. And I like that it's only about an hour and 40 minutes. It doesn't, it tells the story that it wants to tell without feeling too short or too drawn mm-hmm. out. Right. Because it's sort of, it's weird. It's an hour and 40 minutes, but it's a long hour and 40 minutes. Like it right. feels like there's more going on than in, than just over an hour and a half. But yet mm-hmm. you're not sitting there for the two and a half hours of, of something, um, and feeling like, oh, is this ever going to end? Even when there's scenes in this that feel like they go on forever. Yeah, I was going to say, they're definitely, they they managed to ride the line of not going too long in a scene, but feeling like it's almost too long. <laughs> yeah, Which pri- I, I know is just their way of saying, trying to pull out that weirdness, awkwardness sometimes. Yeah. And two, uh, like I mentioned for the breakfast scene with the need, the prowler needs a jump, it, it feeds into the comedic timing too. Because you're mm-hmm. sitting there, you're waiting. You've assumed that the scene is done. And then you get the, it's kind of a chuckle when he reaches over and kind of pulls the plate part way and then pulls it the rest of the way and just starts eating it. And you think, okay, now the scene's done. And then it keeps right. going. And then you get that nice mm-hmm. payoff of her needing to jump. Like, I loved yeah. all that. Um, and And I liked the way everyone was written where it felt they felt like like relationships that weren't just written for a movie if that makes sense like they weren't her and her partner aren't just partners in this movie like you know her saying stuff like well is dave open oh you don't think dave had anything to do with it? no 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 i just need to get some night right. for norm like <laughs> yeah. it, it, they feel like real interpersonal relationships on that side uh-huh. and then the other side of it Jerry and his family feel like the complete opposite and they're mm-hmm. and it makes sense because Jerry's pretty much a sociopath in a lot of ways. Yeah. So if you haven't seen this movie, first of all, we've just ruined the whole thing for uh for you, but <laughs> who cares? Go watch it anyway cuz it's still good. And yeah, it, it definitely is. I've been wanting to watch the series for a while. But I've sort of been putting it off and now that I've watched the movie again, I, I think I'm going to dive into the series. I'm pretty sure I can find yeah. it. And I think they're on like their fourth or fifth season now. I think season four. Okay. But I'm definitely all about it. Okay. Just finished season four. Phil says a little bit ago. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm all about it. I, I can't wait to dive back in. Cause I've heard from people like Scott Johnson, um, who loves this movie and he thinks that the series mm-hmm. is better. Yeah. And that's not the first time I've heard that. So if that's true, I'm even more on board. Yeah, I've been intrigued and watched pieces of it here and there just on YouTube. Just the way I watch some stuff sometimes, I'm like, mm-hmm. it's pretty good. So I would say actually watching it will probably be even that much better. Very cool. Well, Audie, I want to say thanks for um, to you for coming on this week. This was cool. So for those of you that don't know, and if you liked this conversation between Audie and I, we do this every week already. We yep. just do it talking about Highlander, the series. Yeah. Um, but it was, I had the realization, I'm like, I haven't had you on this show yet. So it made, <laughs> yeah. it made sense we should do that. Um, but yeah, if you like this conversation, check us out uh, with Let's Watch Highlander, which comes out on Thursdays as a podcast. And we record mm-hmm. that Monday nights where we just wrapped up season one. And we are actually going to be, our next episode is going to be reviewing a movie. We're going to review Highlander, the first movie. Because why not? Yep. Here's a funny thing I was telling the chat earlier. Fargo is set in 1987. Highlander the movie came in came out in 1986. Huh. So they both happened around the same time period. So while the gathering was going on in New York, this was all happening in Minnesota. It all makes sense <laughs> yeah. now. Like a year later, but yeah. <laughs> all makes sense now. Uh-huh. Now, Audie, where can people find cuz you you're an artist. You've got some work out there. Where can people find that if they don't already listen to our other show and and hear it all the time yeah two best places to hit me up is on twitter uh i'm at oddly normal one spelled out so uh, i'll just go ahead and say it for you if you need it it's o-d-d-l-y n-o-r-m-a-l 
uh, O-N-E, oddly normal one. Uh, and then uh, I'm also active and put a lot of my art up on Instagram, and there I'm simply Audie underscore Norman. Yeah, so that's A-U-D-A-I-E underscore N-O-R-M-A-N. Yeah, and it's fantastic work. You've done, uh, you, well, you did the album art for this show, for our Highlander show. Um, it's It's really good stuff, and people should check it out because... Your work is great. I love. I like your style too. Appreciate it. You have a very distinct style, and I'm I'm catching it more. Like the more of your artwork that I see, the more like I I just really love the way that you capture the people that you draw. Because you, you manage to make it, you manage to get your style in with the, and it still looks like the person you're drawing. And that to me yeah. is the mark of somebody who really is comfortable with their art. So it's good stuff, and definitely definitely check that out. Now with this show. We record every Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern right here, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. So if you like uh, hearing us talk about movies, you should come check out and be like Wicked Kitten and Phelan and Phil Rudd and the Gray Muscles, mm-hmm. Dusty White and Dusty Red in our chat room and yell stuff at us. I'm reading it all the time, so it's, yeah. it's pretty fun. <laughs> uh, and then the show itself will come out on Wednesdays as a podcast as well, so you can hear it there um, if you don't catch it live or if you just want to hear it again. Uh, yeah. Now next week I have, oh, uh, JF Dubo, uh, writer of Ake Willow and other fun nice. stories. He's going to come on and we're going to talk about, cause I haven't seen it before. Blade Runner 2049. Ooh. Uh, he I still has, need to watch that too. He has warned me it is his favorite movie of all time and we may go for <laughs> several hours talking. So we'll find out <laughs> if you want to be part be of that, good. you got to come hang out next Sunday night. I'm looking forward to For it because sure. I love the first Blade Runner. I really like that movie, and it just I just mm-hmm. haven't gotten around to seeing the new one, so now I have no excuse. <laughs> Phil in the chat says, strap in. JF's going to go off the deep end. I'm ready. I told him I'm ready for it. We're going to do that. So that's what's coming up next yeah. week. There's nothing like a writer who really likes something. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm, I am definitely looking forward to it. So that's going to be next week. Uh, we're going to talk about that. But until until then, just remember to get out and enjoy your movies. Um, and it's a weird time out there, so you know, be excellent to each other. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>